What's to be done about Britain's electoral system? We're writing a constitution, so we need to put something in, surely. But what? Well, I'm joined in the studio by Simon Hicks, a professor of government here at LSC and something of an expert on this subject. Simon, what kind of electoral system do we have here in the United Kingdom? Oh, we have loads of different assemblies nowadays. What kind of well, electoral system? Well, we have lots of different electoral systems. The, electoral, the main electoral system, the one we use for electing people to the House of Commons, is called uh, first past the post. It means mm -hmm. we divide the whole country up into constituencies and one person is elected in every constituency. Mm -hmm. Each party puts up one candidate in each constituency and each voter has one vote. And then in the constituency, you add up all the votes and the one who has the most votes in each constituency gets elected. Sounds oh. nice and simple, but what it means is that you can actually get quite a few people elected who don't have majority support yeah. in their constituency. Because they have the most in that place. They have the most they? votes, but it doesn't mean that they have won a majority of the votes. For example, somebody can win with 30% of the vote in their constituency. 70% of the people in that constituency have voted for other people. Yeah, so it kind of worked when there was just sort of A versus B. Yeah, it worked when we had yeah. two parties. In the 50s, 90% of people went out and voted either for Labour or Conservative. In 95% of constituencies, Labour and Conservative were the top two parties in each constituency. So yeah. it, was like a, it was a two-horse race in every constituency. The other thing I hate about it, and I'm revealing my Irish preference here, is you want to get one Tory vote for, or one Labour guy. So supposing I was kind of Labour, but supposing I was pro-European Labour or pro-European Tory or something, I have to vote for whoever's served up, whereas other systems give you a bunch of people from within each party. Right, that's the, there's, lot, there's lots of criticisms of it, of the system we have for electing the House of Commons. One of them is you don't have choice within party. Mm -hmm. The party decides the candidate. So the party says, you have to choose between David Cameron, a candidate we have put up for you, and Ed Miliband puts up a candidate, and they've made that choice for you. Whereas a lot of other countries, um, they'll have on election day, you as a citizen say, I want to vote for this party, but I want to choose which candidate from this party to vote for. Yeah. So yeah. there's lots of other ways to do that. We yeah. don't currently do that in the UK. And the other thing that results is that you have parties deciding who to put in for so-called safe seats, and that's the real election, yes. sort of primary. So most seats in the country are safe seats. Mm -hmm. So, you know, although we have 650 members of the House of Commons, only about 60 seats are actually competitive seats. Yeah. They're the ones everybody cares about, the marginals everyone's focusing on. The parties spend all their resources on those marginals. The pollsters figure out who are the swing voters in those marginals. The party leaders then spend all of their time talking to the swing voters in the marginal, tailoring their policies to meet that swing voter. So if you're not a swing voter in a marginal constituency, Nobody cares about you. Nobody cares about yeah, and, and, safe Labour seats yeah. where we've got you know, very poor white council houses in safe Labour seats. Labour has ignored those voters for years. Or in rural areas, safe Conservative voters, older voters saying, well, they don't care about me. They're just focusing on the swing voter in the marginal constituency. And also the local MP doesn't either, actually, because he or she has a job for life in a sort of way, as you yes. presented. I grew up in Sussex, and my constituency MP was Sir Geoffrey Johnson-Smith, and he, he had the worst attendance of Parliament of any MP at the time, and he showed up from his uh, family, from his... Uh, you know, the house he had in, in Spain with a suntan for the election and his big conservative rosette. And, and that's what that's the only time we ever saw him. As the <laughs> Are the other assemblies we've got, these Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish ones and uh, the local authority constituency arrangements, are they better? Is there fair voting systems elsewhere in the country? Well, actually, uh, for the London Assembly, the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly, we have you have two votes. So you have one vote for your local constituency and then you have one vote for a party list. Uh -huh. So 
it, it leads to a more proportional outcome, which is one of the problems of the House of Commons system, but it still doesn't allow you to have a choice between candidates from the same party. So we talked about one of the problems is you can't have choice within a party. But the other problem is you can win the election, meaning you can win a majority of seats in the House of Commons without winning a majority of the votes. So, you know, we had for years Conservatives winning a majority of seats in the House of Commons with only 40% of the vote, and then again Labour. So in a sense, you can get outcomes of the election where the majority have voted against the party that is then governing. Has that ever happened? All, all, all the time. It happens all the time. We, you know, we can have, you can say that Conservatives governed for years with Margaret Thatcher, and 60% of the country were voting for Labour or the Lib Dems against Margaret Thatcher, yet she kept winning because she had a majority of seats in the House of Commons. In the vital swing seats In the vital swing, yes, that's right. And so, so we have a problem in, in that vote shares in the election don't map onto seat mm -hmm. shares in the Parliament. So you can win a majority of seats, you can win more than 50% of seats in the House of Commons with less than 50% of the votes. And so you might say it's okay if you get 45% of the votes, but we could have this election coming up in, in May this year, you could have either Labour or Conservative just squeaking a majority of seats in the House of Commons on the back of 34% of the vote. So that's 34% of the people who vote, which means it's, what, 20%? 20% of actually the public. So of the voting age population, yeah. you could end up governing the country, having a majority in the House of Commons, with only 20-25% of one in four voting age adults actually casting their vote for your party, your candidates. And that could then translate into majority, and then that majority can yeah. govern for five years. There Doesn't is a, sound very democratic to me. There is a point where it stops being democratic. I don't know what that point is, but if it's one in five of the eligible voters who vote in the government, that would be hard to explain if it were North Korea. Uh, yeah. We just take it for granted because it's the United Kingdom. So yeah, well, so normally in, in political science, we, we think of a trade-off in the design of electoral yeah. systems, a trade-off between how representative do we want the parliament to be right. and how stable do we want the government. Oh yeah, strong government is one strong of the Strong government. So strong, gov yeah. strong government versus a representative parliament. So you know, on the, a lot of the continent after the First World War and then again after the Second World War, when they were, when they were designing their electoral system, what they cared about was how making the parliament very representative. Mm -hmm. So the, the parliament should be a microcosm of society. Mm -hmm. So we want a very proportional electoral system. So if a party wins 5% of the votes, they should get 5% of the seats. If you win 25% of yeah. the votes, you get 25% of the seats. So we don't seats. care about government. This so is more important it's to us. More, more, yeah. more important is, is the parliament as as, as the sort of the synchronon of democracy is the representativeness of parliament. The problem then is then you get coalitions yeah. formed afterwards and a deal gets done in smoke-filled rooms and, and the public says, well, I didn't vote for that yeah. government that then gets formed. So we would then pride ourselves yeah. on the fact that we had single party government, one party governing, we can see what they're, who's responsible, what the policies they've done, and we can either punish them or reward them. And we, it's absolutely transparent. We call this clarity of responsibility. We can hold them responsible for what they've done. Yeah. But so that was the trade-off. When you design yeah. electoral systems, you'd say either we have the British type system that leads to one party government, but not very representative parliament, or you have a highly representative parliament, but not very accountable government. Yeah. Now, <laughs> most political scientists actually think that that was a bit of an artificial trade-off. And a lot of the cross-country research has shown that you can actually design the systems to sort of get the best of both worlds. You can design them in such a way that, that you can get highly representative parliaments, perhaps not as purely representative as PR, and you can get pretty accountable government with, with maximum two parties sitting mm -hmm. around the cabinet mm -hmm. table. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so 
Spain or Denmark or Sweden or Chile or Tunisia now, they've designed their electoral system so you can get representative parliaments and pretty strong government. So this sounds to me to be the kind of thing that if you were writing the constitution and you're only a political scientist so we won't let you, you know, this is for the people. Uh, and the lawyers will put the people's will into effect, so you don't come in here on the pecking order. No, but, but we, you, we would make we would make the case. You make the and, case, and the you citizens' assembly would then decide what they want. So, but we, as political scientists, would come and make the case. So and I make, would make the case, and, and we've done this. We've done this in well, Tunisia. Do we've it, done this in Chile. You've so. done. You've succeeded in Chile. Yes. Do it here. What would you? What would be the your preferred electoral system for, say, the UK Parliament? Okay. What I would like is is to have three or four MPs elected in every constituency in the country. So big constituencies. So the constituencies would be, would be a, about four times the size yeah. they are now. Um, and then you'd have three or four elected in each constituency and the parties would then put up a list of candidates and you as a citizen get to choose one of those candidates. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's three elected in Sussex where I grew up. So, and the Conservatives would put up three candidates and Labour would put up three candidates and the Lib Dems and the Greens and the UKIP and everybody else. Yeah. And you as a citizen would go along and say, which of these candidates for the party I want to vote for do I want to vote for? And so you'd say, okay, I like that guy number two on the Labour list, let's say. After the election, you then add up the votes. Oh, so you only do one, you, you only put X, it's still well, just it's still one choice. It, you, you, could, you could do it lots of different ways, but this is one way of yeah, doing it that's okay. very common. It's your way, this is the way you want. So, yeah, but it's, yeah. A very, it's the most common way of doing this yeah. in, in, in these what are called multi-member constituencies. Um, and then after the election, you'd say, let's say Conservatives have now won two seats in Sussex. It would be the candidates that got, the, the two candidates of those three that got the most votes, uh -huh. right? I see. So, it, uh, one, several things would happen there. One, you'd get a more representative parliament because mm -hmm. suddenly you'd get Labour winning some seats in the south of England mm -hmm. and Conservatives winning mm -hmm. some seats in the north of England. There's plenty of Conservative voters in the north of England who then don't have MPs that represent them. And there's plenty of Labour voters in the south of England who don't have MPs. And that Tory women might want to choose the woman on the list and, and vice exactly, versa. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Or, or minorities yeah. or whatever. And equally, you'd, you'd suddenly get UKIP starting to win seats you'd get green starting to win seats, but they'd still win only a small number of seats yeah. because if you think three MPs elected in a constituency, you've got to win 25% of the vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big deal. You've got to get a lot of votes to get elected. So it's still a relatively high threshold, which stops huge fragmentation yeah. and still encourages people to support the bigger parties. So you get this nice trade-off between getting a bit more of a representative parliament, but still not too much fragmentation, that then after the election, you'd probably have a coalition but you'd probably only have a coalition yeah. between two parties. Two, two. Would you give kids the vote? At the moment, I think it's 18. Would you yes. reduce it and how low would you take it? I'd take it down to 16. I think there's yeah. plenty of examples where the where it has, for example, in Austria, it's been reduced to 16. In in Scotland, it's been it was reduced to 16 for the Scottish referendum and it could well be reduced to 16 for the next Scottish Why not go lower though? 12, I, you know, these kids are very responsible. They're in secondary school, they do. Why do we suddenly stop at 16? I mean, six, 16 we recognise as a threshold for, you know, lots of things in terms of, of people's age and people leave home, you can be employed, you can have sex, you can, you know, this yeah. is, sort of 16 is okay. a threshold these days that we recognise as the birth, you know, when people start to become yeah. recognised as adults. And in the law, as far as I understand it, it's yeah. sort of, this is, adulthood sort of starts around this. So that's age. it, you bring adulthood down. You, you're recognising adulthood starting slightly lower than it used what about the fact that young people, and indeed more and more all of us, just aren't used to this notion of sort of 
traipsing along to a ballot and entering an X, or in your case, an X across these and that numbers. What about tweeting your vote or doing it in your supermarket or doing it in remote ways? Yeah, it's like, creative it's ways it's to do this. It seems ridiculous that we can get online and transfer large amounts of money between the bank accounts online, but we're not allowed to vote online. And I don't buy any of the arguments about security and electoral fraud. If the banks can figure it out, then surely we can figure it out. I just think it's a, it's a, it's a lack of creative, creative thinking and it's a lack of sort of investment, yeah. financial investment, in figuring out actually how to do this. I don't mm -hmm. see why you can't have a... Everybody should have an electoral ID individually. We've now moved to individual electoral registration. So all of us now will have an electoral ID, like you have an NHS ID yeah. and a driving license ID. We're going to have a voter ID as an individual. Why can't you have a voter ID and a voter password? Get online, enter your voter ID, enter your password. It tells you what's your constituency you're registered in, and you cast your vote. Press send. So it's just Why, lethargy, is it? It's just lethargy? purely lethargy that's stopping us from doing this. Did the Scots do it that way? How come they had such energy? Was it just the fact of an exciting debate It was a very Scotland? exciting campaign yeah. about the Scottish referendum. It was seen as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it was a very close vote. The key thing about elections uh -huh. is that motivates turnout is uh, it's important, i.e. the outcome is really significant in terms of the direction of the future, yeah. and it's going to be close. Nobody's going to vote if it's not going to be close. They're, they know the outcome of the election. Why do I need to bother? But if it's going to be close and it's going to be significant, then people show up. Because in the current system, the amazing thing is anybody votes at all, really. It is astonishing anybody votes at all. In fact, a lot of political scientists have a theory to say that you probably shouldn't vote because the probability that you're, you're going to be pivotal in determining mm. the outcome of the election is close to zero, so why waste your time? But maybe they're onto something, Simon, which would even affect the new system that you're suggesting, that the voting doesn't matter in a, in a more yes. sort of profound way. Yes. You know, that our structures of government are there for us. The world is run by not the nation state That's anymore. Right. It's run by international corporations and so on. You, you don't have to be a ridiculous sort of fanatical left to say something like that. And people are making a judgment about the irrelevance of parliament. Is there something about that? Is um, there something maybe, there? maybe. I mean, there's still a lot of things at stake. I mean, you can argue that some things are beyond the, the realm of what politics yeah. can do. Quite a lot. Is it? Quite, quite a lot. But, and you can argue yeah. that, that the choice has been truncated. But yeah. within that, we still have some choice. Within that, we've got choices about how much do we tax wealthy people relative to poorer people? How much money do we spend in the public sector? Um, what should be the opportunities for migrants or how restrictive should be, we be on migration? Or what kind of other social policies should we have, like gay marriage and these types mm -hmm. of things? So within the, the, the realm, you know, constrained by international human rights norms, constrained by the global economy, constrained by the EU, um, within that there still is a realm with it, with where choice matters and who is going to be in government matters. I still think that's the case. The counterfactual would be, mm, mm. would we have seen a very different government had it just been a single-party conservative government as opposed to a coalition with the Lib Dems? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. So okay. therefore you can say that it did matter. The outcome of the election did matter. Yeah. And, and I think that's the same going forward. You can, I think the outcome of this upcoming election does matter going yeah. forward in terms of a, several really key important issues. We have kind of the Conservatives to thank because ideas about departing from the European Union and about getting out of the whole European Convention on Human Rights, these are quite big. And oh, yeah. this means this election maybe has got a kind of difference that wasn't there in the immediate past. Yes, I think that's right. But I, I still think economics is going to be the key deciding factor. So. But they're both the same there, aren't they? Labour, Well, they are, but I think there's a big difference on how I think um, the Conservatives and Labour think they, they want to pay for the state. So I think 
you know, both parties would like, I don't think either party is going to significantly increase the size of the state. So the big question is, how do we pay for it? And I think there is a big difference between the parties. And I think Labour are arguing, for example, through the mansion tax, um, they want to increase taxes on, on higher income people, which the Conservatives would say, mm-hmm. you're increasing taxes on wealth creators. So, I mean, you, I think you do see uh, yeah. an economic difference there between the major parties. Do you think stuff like electoral systems should be in a constitution? Or do you think that's the kind of thing that the parliament of the day decides? Because countries go in different directions on this. Well, it depends what... You, I mean, most countries actually have it set out in some kind of statute. Uh, ordinary law. Ordinary law statute. Yeah. But then it gets, you know, and then the winners don't, the reason we don't see electoral reform is the winners don't change the rules. So, you know, <laughs> you've won an election under yeah. one set of rules, you're not going to change yeah. the rules. Like my, my kid's playing Monopoly, my, yeah. my daughter always wants to fiddle with the rules because her brother always beats her. You know, this is the... <laughs> the She's never in a position to do so because she's uh, never won. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, electoral systems are, people argue that the people who want to change electoral systems are the people who lost the election. Yeah. You know, it's only losers want to change yeah. the electoral system. Well, it, it comes to a point where actually the electoral system in Britain, for example, is not fit for purpose. It was fit for a country. It worked very well in the 1950s and 60s. In a sense, we have an electoral system fit for a country that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. We had two classes. We had the country largely divided along the kind of economic haves and have-nots. You had these two parties that represented them, and one party won a clear majority, or the other party won a clear majority. We're a much more diverse and pluralist country, diverse geographically, diverse socially, diverse economically. The world has changed, and we should have an electoral system that reflects that. So this is why the electoral system is craking at the seams, because mm-hmm. it's designed for a country that it doesn't fit so in. So what you could do is you could put in the Constitution, the method of voting shall be such as to be uh, achieving a fair spread. Yes. And, the question I want to ask you, subsection 2, voting shall be compulsory. Oh, would you do that? Some I wouldn't do. do that. I know. I wouldn't do that. I, I'm, I, you know, I think it should be a free choice in a democracy whether you vote. I think that I think you know we could try and make it compulsory, but why why force people to vote? It's not like you know you force people to pay their taxes because you're paying taxes on their their income, but forcing people to vote that's a bit too much. And I think there's very little. I mean, there's some evidence that. It, t- it does tend to be lower income and younger voters who are not voting. And uh, centre-left parties across the world argue that if you had higher levels of turnout, they would do better yeah. in elections. Uh, but equally, I think it, 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 it should be people's free choice. What we should be de- focusing on is not whether we make voting compulsory. We should be making it easy. We should be making it easy to register and easy and interesting and exciting to be engaged in the electoral process. In a sense, forcing people to vote actually stops you having to think about those other issues. And that, to me, is far more important. Simon Hicks, thank you very much.